Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hey, good morning. We, well, it might not be morning when you listen to this, but it's morning now when I record it. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Social Workers Rise. I'm so happy that you have found us. I am here with my first ever interview uh, with my good friend and colleague, Susie, and I honestly, I don't even know how to pronounce your last name, so. (laughs) (laughs) My last name is Zokler. Okay. (laughs) Susie Zokler. So, thank you so much for being my first guest. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. So, tell us, like, where... Just tell us your story. Like, where are you from? What did you do? Is there any, like, kind of juicy stories that made you choose to be a social worker or get into the field of social work? So, my story is probably not much interesting compared to a lot of other people's stories, but usually a lot of people who I feel like choose social work, choose social work because of, like, experiences that they've gone through, and I'm very similar in that. Um, I was um, not always sure that that's what I was going to do at one point when I was like seven years old I thought I was going to be a dentist but um I ended up kind of realizing you know through the course of my life like you know I I had a lot of typical experiences like you know my um, parents getting divorced and then being raised by a single mom and then like relocating out of state like from you know where my parents had lived once together um and then kind of being stuck in like the a lot of the situations related with you know single moms you know we were we were poor um you know we had experienced homelessness a few times um we would you know go around to like local food banks and things on the weekends and churches to get free food and all the while not realizing that those experiences that I was having was unique to us um, and the fact that none of my friends' families were doing things like that on the weekend, but I just knew that it was what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, like, moving forward, um, I ended up having some experiences in high school that were interesting where they, you know, and maybe it was like a government or an econ class where they kept talking about, like, you know, this, the the white middle class, white middle class. And I was, I kept being like, I don't understand what you guys are talking about, like, you know, like kind of what now I'm realizing in the profession would have been like understanding privilege, you know? Okay. And so at the time I was saying, I never experienced any of these things, you know, I've been okay. to the welfare Even though office. You're white. Yeah. <laughs> and so being white, like, and so one of my teachers pulled me aside and said, I think the reason why you have such a hard time with some of the material we're covering is because your experience or your narrative doesn't fit you know, the typical of what we assume of white persons, you know, experience to be. Um, and that was just kind of like the beginning. And I wouldn't know until later when I actually went into social work, there's kind of like a term for that, you know, intersectionality. 
and oh, so I didn't know that <laughs> yeah so it, it's it's many people learn about it in their social work differently and they you know like understanding just the different facets of someone's identity and how okay. they interplay together mm-hmm. um so for me my my experience of being you know a white woman you know cisgender heterosexual but also at the same time growing up very poor and so that greatly impacted me and how I experienced my world. And I didn't know that there was really, you know, like, oh, this this is a thing. Right. And so that really was big when I got into it. But um, my mom and I had a falling out uh, when I was 18. She kind of put me out. And I was still, still kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I jumped straight into college, did the community college thing. In that time, I was doing what um, my you know, I thought was important. And I was going to counseling. Actually, it was supposed to, it started as family counseling and it was supposed to be something that was supposed to benefit, you know, everyone in the family. Well, not everyone stuck to it, but I did. Okay. And my counselor or therapist at the time, um, ended up becoming kind of like a mentor as well. Hmm. And she had an MFT and an LCSW. And so I asked her, you know, like, well, these are kind of the things that I'm interested in. I really want to help other kids who were, you know, at risk or, you know, first time college graduates get into college because I really see that as being the, the gateway, you know, to, to maybe a little bit easier life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so she said, you know, it sounds like you really would be like a good fit for social work. And so at that point I had started to kind of, um, I think play with the idea, started taking like psych and social classes and in community college. Um, then I experienced a loss of, I was dating a guy, like a significant other who died in an accident. Mm. Um, and then like maybe two years later, a friend called me and she said, you know, she goes, Susie, I, I don't, I have this friend and her boyfriend, you know, just got hit by a car and he passed away and I don't know what to say to her. And she was like, will you talk to her? And mind you, I've never met this woman in my life or this young lady at the time. And I was like, okay, I guess, you know, I mean, really, what can you say to someone who's going through that? And, and so I gave the girl a call and we talked for a while and, and it was, and it was, it, that is my aha moment. That moment that clicked for me that said, I can take all of these experiences that I've had in my life and by having gone through them already, relate to others and then help them get through things. Right. And that was really, I think, my, my big moment. Yeah, that's powerful. Even though I've known you for like years, I don't think I've ever really like heard the full story. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? And it's so ironic when you were mentioning how like when we, you were young, so we were going to school, like in elementary school, that would have been what, like the 90s? Yeah. Okay. So like we were being taught like the white middle class as if middle class is white poor people are not white right and it's just so like backwards because I've heard that most people like receiving these benefits are in fact white exactly in the United States so I feel like that's like super ironic and maybe plays into where like how far we've come as a country and like that that stereotype was like full and well and prevalent in the 90s yeah and was this in California they went to school? So I was born here. Um, my elementary years were spent in West Virginia. Okay. So that was a very different experience for me too because where we were at was predominantly white. Oh. And so I would say that 
that would have been kind of more of what you're speaking about where like everyone who was receiving social services at the time were all white. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. maybe the less affluent neighborhoods still had like the pockets of people of color. Um, but for the most part, I would see, you know, you know, the, the trailer park homes and things like that with just as many, if not more white people. Sure. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. So then, so then you decided to go into social work after this, like almost kind of therapeutic grief counseling mm-hmm. that you had with this girl. Um, so what do you do? Like, what population do you primarily serve now? And, like, how did you choose that particular population? So, um, right now I'm doing uh, school-based social work. Um, I'm a clinician working with um, my population specifically are kids um, that have IEPs, which is an individualized education plan. So, they are basically fall under the special education umbrella. Okay. Um, so my students, what happens is, is when they're being um, assessed through school psychologists are determined to exhibit some sort of social emotional barrier to being successful in school. Okay. And so it kind of went into where I was going, you know, where when I had decided what I wanted to do, I was like, I want to work with kids who are, you know, at risk, you know, vulnerable populations, um, you know, kids who maybe given different circumstances, you know, it would, it would make the difference, make or break for them into going into higher education. And, and I feel like I kind of, I got really lucky to kind of have just discovered the position, Mm -hmm. um, in the way that, that I, that's pretty much exactly what I do. Like my goal is to, um, help these kids get through, you know, the, the barriers to getting into to being successful in academics. Oh, wow. So most kids, you know, they, you know, we have, you know, all these different things going on with Common Core and, and the way education is set up. But a lot of students aren't really in a healthy enough mindset to even really sit in a classroom and be ready to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm there is to, okay. to pull them out, address the things that are going on so that hopefully when they're in a classroom, they're more ready and able to absorb the information being presented by the teachers. Okay. What would you say is like kind of common when you say like things that are going on, like what kind of things are going on with, with kids? And then, and specifically like, where are you working? Like the city? And- oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm in the Los Angeles area servicing one of uh, the school districts in the area okay. of, of Southern California, Los Angeles. And um, the, some of the things that I see are our students, um, normally are classified based on, um, like we have a few eligibilities as they would call it. Um, one of them is like emotionally disturbed students. One of them would be, uh, students with autism. Then we have a uh, specific learning disability. So these are students who are struggling in, and maybe just one or more specific subject matters um and I think things like uh, dyslexia would fall into that because it has to do with like reading and things like that Mm -hmm. um comprehension and then um other health impairment so those are students who may actually qualify for something like a a physical disability or um things like attention deficit disorder or um ADHD hyperactivity disorder um and these are students who if if given you know, the proper coping skills or, or, or strategies, you know, can take those things into the classroom. Um, I, a lot of the students, um, have, uh, because autism is one of the eligibilities, we have social impairments, um, kids who, uh, withdraw, shut down, isolate, 
Um, and on the flip side of that, kids who exhibit a lot of aggressive behaviors, um, they're being suspended a lot because they're aggressive, they're hitting, um, hitting teachers. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've walked into a destroyed classroom. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, kids is, you know, the, the youngest kid that I think I've worked with, I think was first grade. And then I've had kids because... A special education um, eligibility allows you to remain in school longer. Okay. The oldest kid that I think I worked with was 19 already. And I think they okay. can stay until about 21 okay. um, to finish their, their education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also a lot of uh, just depression, anxiety, kind of those typical, uh, typical emotional disturbances. Because obviously if, if you're shut down, withdrawn, um, or anxious, your thoughts are elsewhere. You're not sure. focusing on on what the teacher's teaching. Right. And those are some of kind of the the, the general kids that we see day-to-day on our caseloads. Okay. Wow. That's, that's tough. What is a typical caseload like for someone in your position? So several years ago when I started, they were, um, they were higher for my particular district. Um, I was servicing probably upwards of 40. Okay. Um, and that, those students usually receive typically like their prescribed minutes anywhere usually between like 30 and 60 minutes a a week is average um we do have the flexibility of grouping students with similar goals so if we have a if we've noticed we've got two or three kids with you know social impairments we can group them together okay if we find that to be beneficial um now it's it's more between like the 25 30 range okay because i travel to multiple schools so Mm -hmm. they have to take into account um travel time and the number of campuses um you know every single campus has a different bell schedule so you're running into barriers of how can I pull kids if I arrived and it's their lunch and now I've lost 30 minutes of my day and I have three more kids to see kind of thing so and I'm battling through LA traffic yeah oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) that too of course yeah Yeah. it doesn't it never stops (laughs) yeah it goes from awful to like bad and then back to awful yeah (laughs) (laughs) so then these kids they have a lot of different things going on and there's so many different needs like what do you typically do to kind of help them like focus or to help them maybe be more motivated like are there tip like are there kind of techniques that you do with them or teach them uh so for some students who are having like um uh i mean definitely like most in general, I guess, like clinicians, every single student's case-by-case basis and what works for one may not necessarily work for another. So being being open-minded that, like, you may fail a lot of times before you find something that works. Um, and so with that in mind, I failed a lot. <laughs> or at least I have felt like I have. Yeah. Um, where I, you know, because of whatever's going on, I feel like I've, I, I hit a lot of walls where stuff that seems like was working suddenly something else will happen and we'll have a lot of regression throughout the school year and stuff and um but for students with like ADHD who um I've had students who are more like higher functioning who are very insightful and we can do a lot of like self-regulatory type things um where uh they can even do check-ins with themselves and note how they're feeling and and 
make the connections throughout the day that like if I'm feeling this type of way Mm -hmm. maybe I should ask my teacher for a break to go outside and then they'll be given like a five minute pass to go walk around kind of shake some of that off and then come back into the classroom you know can I get a drink of water you know a lot of it is collaboration working with the teachers and kind of like you know because they see depending on what grade level if we're if we're at middle school they're seeing 120 150 kids a day you know and to remember like oh this student in his you know individual education plan one of his reasonable accommodations is that he'd be given breaks to use the restroom mm-hmm. you know because a lot of times the kid will be like can I use the bathroom and the teacher will be like no stay in your seat <laughs> right and forgetting that these these are things that these kids need okay in order to to stay focused so I kind of work like um you know advocate for the students and, and remind and collaborate a lot with teachers um that's one example I'm trying to think of what other ones you what else you ask uh, uh, motivational interviewing um, that's one of the things that we do if, if we can kind of get, figure out what gets these kids motivated um, a lot of kids are very incentive driven which makes my job very hard because right. um, <laughs> kids nowadays are asking for iPhone 11s oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. not buying kids on my caseload an yeah. iPhone 11 no, no. <laughs> and then boundaries yeah <laughs> Uh, parent collaboration is really important. Um, uh, parents tend to either reward students, I mean, in my personal opinion, too much mm. for too little. Um, I, I've had students get a PlayStation for getting an F to a D. Ooh. Yeah, and that's, you know, the bar that they've set because yeah. they're so relieved that it's no longer a fail. And then as soon as they get that PlayStation, that grade drops right back down. Um. And so kind of like parent education, you know, talking about like, you know, appropriate reinforcement schedules, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so collaboration's always big, you know, and providing that kind of education. But the motivational interviewing, um, sometimes, sometimes you, I do have several students on my caseload where the, there it's very challenging to find what motivates them because... Or the thing that motivates them is is negative, I would oh. like to say. So for yeah. some of my students who are um, really having a hard time, they, they thrive on the negative attention-seeking behaviors. And so they love to be disruptive in class because okay. it frustrates the teacher. The teacher is now spending all of their time yelling at them. Mm-hmm. All of the students in the classroom are laughing. It makes the student feel good yeah. to make their peers laugh. And so it becomes like this ongoing thing where they're like, why would I sit down and be quiet and do my work when it feels so much better to have the classroom in an uproar laughing, mm-hmm. you know? And so they're, I'm like, I don't think I have anything that really competes with that, especially for those, you know, those impressionable preteen teenage years where, sure. where peer, we you know, peer, um, um, beliefs or you know perceptions of the student is more important than the adults right yeah yeah that's tough but it sounds like specifically teaching them about being able to recognize their own feelings and just being more aware of how they're feeling I feel like that's one of those life skills that's going to take them you know really far as opposed to if they didn't because there's I see so many people who don't know how to regulate their emotions and don't even know how they're feeling until they've just like blown up and they're like, Oh, I just get mad all of a sudden. Like, well, there was probably some 
some signs and cues there that you probably missed. So it's good that you're at least teaching them to just be more aware. Yeah, I, I agree. There's there's a lot of adults who still don't know how to do it. And if you think about it, you know, like if if an, if a parent doesn't have that self awareness mm-hmm. and the ability to teach that to their kid and things like that, that that it's going to be kind of the the cycle and the, the pattern's going to repeat, them, yeah. repeat itself. Maybe your kids can teach their parents. Could happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sometimes it's it, it. You know, especially when you have a parent who's very involved. Um, like I have had in the past, a student want to go home and tell their parents about what they learned and stuff like that. And then yeah. it'll create a conversation between me and the parent. And, and sometimes it does work that way where they're, you know, they're being more mindful of, of you know, their their influence that they're having on their kid because mm-hmm. um you know if, if if a parent is explosive when they're angry and then we see a child exploding at school right. and then we ask them you know we've kind of done like these little like anger family trees or whatever where we t- discuss how each individual in the family um reacts when upset or oh, angry interesting. and then I had this one kid who just was like I'm just like my dad and he was a fourth grader mm, and it was really kind of wow. it's really cute to see like those gears like clicking like oh I act like my dad when I'm angry and I'm like it sounds like you might act like your dad when <laughs> you're angry. wow that is so cool I've never heard of an anger tree mm-hmm. wow so what can you explain that to me yeah, well, kids are really visual, and that that's the one thing is, like I said, every age group that I work with is very different. Um, I always thought I was super stoked to work with middle school and high school, and this year I don't have any elementaries, and I miss the little kids. Um, so, for example, what we would do is, is I would basically just let them um, color a tree for me. We put all of the individuals in their family in that tree. Okay. And then usually we just kind of have a conversation about it. You know, I'll, you know, point to each of the names inside of the tree and I'll be like, okay, can you think of the last time that, you know, you saw this person get angry? What happened before? Do you remember why they were angry? Mm. And then I'll be like, and what did, what did angry look like for them? How did you know that that person was angry? And so then it becomes kind of a little bit of like that social learning too, where like, you know, learning what facial expressions oh well he was yelling you know his face got really red he threw something Mm. you know and so the students identifying like the signs of anger and then um and then also kind of talking about then then we go through after I usually say okay well what happened after after and then he says oh well you know he left and then he went somewhere and then he came back home Mm -hmm. and then I'm like and how did he look when he came home and he said normal you know, happy or whatever. So, so, and then that kind of, then we are able to make that connection between, okay, remember last week when I saw you in class and you had asked the teacher for something and she wouldn't give it to you when you wanted it. And then you ripped up the piece of paper on your table and then you threw it on the floor and then you stormed out of class when the teacher told you no. And then you walked around the schoolyard and then you came back. Mm. So kind of like helping right. them see these patterns, how they're similar, yeah. you know, but, and then also kind of sharing like the inside of like, you know, all of that time when you were spent walking around outside in the yard, everyone else in class was still learning. And so because, because you're having a hard time, you know, with your feelings, it's creating these moments where you're, you're missing learning opportunities and instructional time. And so then the goal is like, okay, maybe uh, this week's goal is going to be instead of walking out of class, you're going to stay in class. 
you know, you may want to put your head down Mm -hmm. and you may not want to pay attention or, but at least you're still there. You're still maybe hearing what's happening, Mm -hmm. you know, so then you're not losing that time from instruction. You know, you're still sitting there. And then eventually, you know, and a lot of elementary school teachers are really great because they're becoming more and more knowledgeable about how like mental health and feelings and all things are, are impacting their kids' ability to learn. They create these really neat cool down corners. Oh, wow. And so what they'll do is they'll put up a divider in the room somewhere. They'll put, like, stress toys, like squeezy balls mm-hmm. and, like, stuffed animals and pillows and books and things so that, um, as well as, like, I know one teacher that I worked with had hung, like, you know, positive, like, sayings around the oh, thing and stuff like yeah. that. Like, to remind the student that, like, when they're calm and if they're in control, that that they're more than welcome to come back and join the class. But you know, being appreciative that they took that time and they noticed mm-hmm. that they were feeling a type of way. And it's a, it's an awesome strategy or intervention to use because I can't tell you, Kim, going back to the destroyed classrooms, when they destroy the classroom, then it's also an, an, a learning opportunity for empathy. Cause now you're not only ruining your learning time, but you've destroyed the learning environment for everyone else mm-hmm. in your class. Okay. And if it gets really unsafe, we actually have to evacuate a classroom. I've had kids throw items like staplers, oh, hole no. punches, like what? heavy items across a classroom and, you know, flip over bookshelves and desks and furniture wow. and all because they can't self-regulate. And so that's why, you know, if, if you can get it to the point where a student is willing to identify, like you said, how they're feeling, go sit in a cool down corner for mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes and then everyone else still gets to learn and they get to come back and transition back into class. They make it like... They try to express, you know, thank you for coming back and joining us, you know, and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But also not making, because you have to watch what you reinforce. Yeah. And so we don't want to, like, praise them too much because then we find kids escaping in there, Mm -hmm. avoiding work. You know, it's like the teachers have a hard job. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. And then with, like, 40, like, 20, what, 25 to 40 students? Yeah. Yeah, and, and luckily the the special ed classrooms are typically uh I'd say more like 15 to 20. Okay. Um some of the more higher uh need students, so students that are um uh autism spectrum or uh emotional disturbance, their classrooms may even be smaller. They okay. may be like 10 to oh, 12 good. students okay. and they will also have like special ed assistants in there or students who are assigned one-on-one behavioral support mm-hmm. um and so the ratio is much better okay. um for those types of classrooms generally that's so good because i haven't i honestly haven't been in elementary school since i graduated <laughs> <laughs> from sixth grade so um so all of this is very enlightening for me and i have a daughter now so it's good to kind of get like a heads up of how schools are the different things that teachers are doing now um i i've heard recently that this per this person told us that the way that his teacher got him to read more was the teacher suggested the parents get him a bean bag for their house or a hammock that would i don't know like encourage him to read or something maybe tactile or i don't know what it was but I was like, that's really interesting because, yeah, I would probably want to sit in a beanbag and, like, 
hang out if I didn't. Yeah, like it's to really read. interesting how they come up with just the little things, the littlest mm-hmm. things that that can really, you know. I mean, I've even done things where um, you you just make it into a game, or you know, challenge the student. Okay, me or you, let's see who finished first. And I'm like, I cannot say how many times I've probably gotten them to do like a task they've been avoiding yeah because you make it into something fun uh-huh. and they don't realize you know that they're learning or actually completing work but because it's been fun yeah they do it that is the best I'll, <laughs> I'll do it with my two-year-old so I'll be like okay Aaliyah how fast can we pick up all the toys and put all the toys in your bins so we can go walk the dog <laughs> So we're picking up the living room and we get to go walk the dog. Like right. two things off of our to-do list. So. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, like, I can kind of see or hear about some changes that have happened since I was in elementary school since the 90s, which was, gosh, like a long time ago. So what kind of changes do you feel are happening now and that are going to happen kind of in the next... I don't know, year, 10 years, you know, whatever. So some of the things that I see is, I mean, I, I think my school district is very proactive in the fact that they're always trying to be like up to date, but I also see them trying to be like in the forefront of making some, some progressive moves is, is in a lot of ways. Um, but that being said, they also are doing the same for mental health. They're really prioritizing, um, putting mental health first of the students because you know healthy families healthy students you know is really what's going to lead to a successful student mm-hmm. um and so they they're they are working very diligently to create ways for families to access services um ways to their policies all reflect um i think like their values of of addressing um you know, vulnerable populations, like they're creating positions for uh, supporting LGBT specific students. They're creating positions to, um, to address issues with, um, you know, gang interventions. I mean, those are things that they've had for a while too. Um, they have uh, programs, you know, the bullying is a big issue. You know, we're seeing a lot of issues with bullying. Um, and so they have these special units that they develop to go out to the schools to provide education to, to staff, students, um, everyone on campus. They're creating these mental health clinics where you can um, receive services. Because my students are only falling under the special education, we realize they only make up a certain percentage of students on campus. What about everyone else? So, um Utilizing the fact that, I mean, in social work, we know that people of color tend to be skeptic of systems mm-hmm. and, and mistrusting, you know, for good reason. And so since their students are already enrolled on campuses, they're already used to, um, they're building relationships on campuses with like family centers and stuff like that. Um, they've started creating these mental health facilities on campuses wow. and so parents can come in and receive support and take their students for support um, in order for them to address mental health you know mm-hmm. challenges and stuff like that and parents are more likely to access them because the school is something that they they, they can trust the rapport mm-hmm. is already there um so and the, they're already there like yeah. they have to drop their kid off anyway yeah and so, so that was like a really good idea i thought yeah. for them to come up with that they they're not 
at the point where they have them in every school, that they definitely have some of them, um, you know, kind of spread out throughout the district so that hopefully they're more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, I see things, uh, I, I think the big work right now is, and that's what we see a lot with like, with, with the nation is, is being sensitive to, to mental health and mental health issues as as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, because people are afraid to ask for help. And so, you know, we're hoping to have, you know, less suicide, less bullying, you know, less self-harm. Um, we know that, you know, high school kids, we do these surveys um, with, I, I believe they're 10th grade students every year fill out surveys um, to discuss behavior. You know, the substance abuse is, is on a rise. Mm. Um, things like, you know, the, the vape pens and things like that with, um, you know, tobacco, um, marijuana, kids are raiding parents' pill cabinets and stuff like that. I mean, we're having, I have been at work and have had an EMT have to take kids to the hospital because they were, you know, falling out from being abusing pills and things Mm -hmm. like that. And and these are scary things for, for everyone to have to see. And so I know that that's one of the new positions they've created is to address the, the substance use providing kids with like education, you know, cause ideally if students are healthy, their coping is healthy, right? You know, because everyone goes through hard times, but it's how we're dealing with it. And if kids are turning to substances, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the last thing that we want. Yeah. It's not just say no anymore. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we, we got young developing minds, you know, and they're chemically altering their brains and, and that's, that's an issue. Yeah. But I think creating, um, an environment as a whole and a culture on these campuses where it's okay to ask for help. And it, you know, to, to destigmatize mental health services. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the big push I see right now. Continuing to address vulnerable populations and continuing to make resources available and, and destigmatizing um, mental health services and stuff like mm-hmm. that, both in the student level and the family level as well. Th- those are the big changes I see that's, that's happening right now. Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. I feel like that has the potential to just change the entire culture going forward. I mean, could you imagine? Start them young. I know, like <laughs> a culture where mental health was not stigmatized. Like it would be just like a health condition going mm-hmm. to the doctor and like, oh yeah, that's just what you do. You go to the doctor and, and I get treated for my depression. Like that would be just so amazing for people to just openly like, oh yeah, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia the other day and I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and I have this support group full of great people that I talk to and they get it. And, and to be able to just like share that openly, I feel would really reduce the isolation because I saw a study that I think Cigna did it the loneliness study have you heard about this I don't think so so the they did the study and I'll put it in the show notes they found that the one of the loneliest populations was generation Z so like the teenagers and early 20s hmm which I find is so ironic because at that time when I was there, all I did was hang out with friends. Right. Like I wasn't lonely. And culturally, that's a big shift too. I mean, kids nowadays, like I, I normally start all of my sessions with just like a general, like, how's your week? How are you feeling? 
you know, and then I'm like, I ask them for highlights or challenges or, you know, give me one of both. And most of the time I'm expecting something like went and played basketball this weekend or went to the beach with my cousins or did something. Mm -hmm. And most of them are like, I don't know, I slept or I played video games. And so in a, in a culture that's so heavy on social media and interacting behind a screen, they've completely lost the ability to interact with each other or the or the motivation or drive to and and I was just like you I remember you know I I had my driver's license like right after I turned 16 and there was no keeping me home Mm -hmm. you know I was out every weekend or going to friends' house and having sleepovers and you know to me it just blows my mind that 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 kids have lost the 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 drive to do those things and um and to really connect and like you're saying it's it's resulting in feeling lonely mm-hmm. that's so crazy so crazy we need to change that too <laughs> <laughs> work on that too yeah <laughs> connectedness yeah <laughs> um so for people who might know someone who is school-aged or under you know 19 is there anything that we can do either as social workers or just as people in general in the community to kind of just support them and and be there for them and show them that we care uh I mean obviously we you know we've got friends and family who all have school-aged children and things like that and you may have some insight already from knowing the adults um or or maybe you know I, I do get a lot of questions from from people who just know that I do social work um they they may or may not be asking me questions that I can't answer because it'll be related to a different avenue of social work like something more you know department children family services or something Mm -hmm. but I also have a whole you know group of colleagues who I went to school with from you know my cohort who I still have as resources um you know so I find that information out but what I think about is really um if you're listening to this podcast you now know about a variety of services that are available um really encouraging the the family to or or the student you know it's mental health services students depending on what the challenge may be doesn't need parent consent after about 12 oh wow and so um you know know yeah so these are things related to you know like a gay or lesbian kid who's afraid to tell their parents because they think they're going to get kicked out Mm -hmm. you know but they're in a lot of distress and they're questioning and and they have all these things that they can't answer they can go to and and they can say if if you tell my parents you know this may be the result or Mm -hmm. you know so they are able to provide their own consent Mm -hmm. um same thing goes with like kind of like sex education and, and getting um that type of support too um, but so if you know that the student's going through something like that, um, you can l- let them know that they may be able to access these types of services on campus okay. with or without their parents' knowledge. Um, and the, the explaining to parents about the resources that are out there and really, really, um, advocating for their students and their family mm-hmm. on campuses, you know, get connected with your parent family centers on campuses. Like a lot of schools have them. Um, you know, maybe you don't have time to like volunteer, but you know, they're there and they're usually really aware of the, of the resources that are available. Um, you know, a lot of parents volunteer their time there throughout the week and, um, you know, really just kind of get you connected. Um, but, but I can think back when I was in high school and kind of what, 
what I think was still a part of like my social work testimony, if you will, was, was that I did have adults. I had some teachers who I felt like I could go to. Um, and so making yourself available, um, if you see something, you know, say something. Mm -hmm. And so if a student appears to be more withdrawn, like, you know, we do do a lot of, uh, trainings and professional developments where we are taught to see these signs of, of changed behavior in kids. So if you see something, you know, allowing that student to know that, that you have an open door and that like, you're willing to take the time to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it may be become a regular thing where they want to come in and have lunch in your classroom um if that's not something that you're able to do you know giving them just a space to drop in and and linking them to someone else you know a social worker on campus a psychologist on campus a counselor on campus um because we know that like really what's best is 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 identifying the the supports Mm -hmm. and and that's really what I would encourage people to do is like you know be the support help find the support get the kids Mm -hmm. connected Mm -hmm. and that can be huge for a population of kids who feel lonely like they don't have anyone so just having that one person I'm sure can be really huge yeah um and that kind of reminds me when I worked with hospice sometimes people who had children I would recommend that they notify the school and give them the heads up that this is going on. Maybe like their their grandma that they lived with is very sick or maybe, you know, sometimes it was even a parent that was really sick and passing away. So, but I never really knew what happened on the other side of like, like, oh yeah, go tell the school because that's what my supervisor told me to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I had never worked with the school, so yeah. I didn't know that, you know, they have like all of these supports that could possibly be available for them. Um, and I imagine giving the teacher the heads up, like, Oh, this is going on and you might see some behavior changes. So just maybe show them a little extra love. Yeah. I I can definitely think of times where I became privy to information that the student didn't provide me, Okay, you know, about, you know, a grandparent passing or parent passing and, and definitely being able to see, you know, and normally, you know, staff may tell me because they think it's important that I know because I'm working with them, mm-hmm. but maybe they don't think that the teacher should know mm-hmm. or something like that. Okay. When I absolutely think the teacher's the person spending the most time with them throughout the school day, mm-hmm. you know, and so that is definitely something, you know, that they should be aware of. Yeah. Cause I remember when I was, I lost my grandmother, I was like 18. So I was technically in college, but I know that I was not telling anybody what happened because you're just trying to cope and you're you're not really emotionally mature you don't even know how to talk about it like what kind of emotions like what is you don't know how you're supposed to feel like are like oh I'm supposed to tell people that this is happening like why I don't I don't even want to think about it and by telling other people I feel like it really kind of makes it real and teenagers just like I just wasn't emotionally prepared to like talk about it. Yeah. But I think looking back, if there were people that happened to find out and knew about it and approached me and say, Hey, you know, like I heard this is happening. Just wanted to like check in on you and how are you doing? Mm -hmm. I feel like that would have like, I'm like getting all emotional, but I feel like that would have really helped, you know, kind of looking back. Well, one of the, one quote that like I always think about, and I can't remember who said it or where it came from, but that you know joy shared is doubled, and then 
like grief shared is one half. Oh, I like that. So every time you share like something, and maybe it wasn't grief, but it was definitely something, but in this situation mm-hmm. it would be grief that, you know, when you tell someone else, they, they, they take a little bit of that weight off of you, which is why like, you know, trauma informed, like narrative therapy, mm-hmm. telling the story can actually help you process it and, and start to, to cope with it. And, but then at the same time, you know, sharing your joys with someone, they get a share in that celebration with you. Yeah. And so that, that's always kind of helped guide, I guess, one of the reasons why I think what we social workers do is so important Mm -hmm. because, you know, not only do we get a rejoice in the successes of our clients and, but we also help carry some of that burden for them, you know, when it seems to be too much. Right. And I think that that's kind of a unique thing that we do. Yeah. I like that. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about today that you wanted to share? Um, I can't think of anything specific today, but I did okay. tell you I would love to be a guest more yeah. than once. And so we can definitely p- dive into a couple other fun topics. And yeah, stuff I would love that because I know that you s- kind of specialize in the LGBT community. Another big one of mine. So yeah. I would love to talk to you about that and maybe like some trauma, like childhood trauma as far as because like the ACEs score or I don't know. I don't work with kids. <laughs> but adverse childhood experiences. S. Yeah. Score yep. maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's becoming a hot topic. I like trauma-informed care. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, we'll definitely talk more. So, um, if people wanted to connect with you, where can they find you? Like on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn? Hmm, let me see. I would say probably my LinkedIn uh, because I don't have anything as far as like professional social work, um, social networking sites at this time Mm -hmm. um but linkedin is something and and it would be yeah and it would actually be Susanna zokler on there so s-u-s-a-n-n-a and then z-o-e-c-k-l-e-r and i'm sure uh kat can share a link or something below yeah Yeah. Susanna zokler sounds so professional (laughs) love the letters Thank you so much, Susie. I really appreciate you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. And if you listening to this want to be on the podcast, then you can message me on Instagram. You can find me at underscore cat more underscore. And oh, last thing I wanted to add, we are actually recording this in my car because we're about to go in for brunch. <laughs> So during the episode, you might have heard, I think there was like a motorcycle and some people coming in and out. So if you're wondering what all these noises are, then that's why. So um, we're not perfect, but hey, we're showing up. We're getting it done. Showing up's half the battle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's 75% of the battle, especially going to the gym for me. So (laughs) all right. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so, so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please leave a five-star review and a little note about what you loved. This helps our ratings and helps other social workers just like you find us and join our community. Also, if you want to be a guest on the show or if you just want to stay in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram at underscore cat more underscore and that's c-a-t 
M-O-O-R-E. Thanks. I'll see you next time.